Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Father, we, we declare today that we stand. We stand in your presence. We stand in awe of you because we are no longer slaves. But you call us your sons and daughters. We are no longer estranged from you, but have been reconciled. We are no longer distant, but you've called us close. Lord, you're the only one that could make this possible. And so we stand in awe and all we can say is thank you. And we worship you and we praise you and we give you all the glory and honor that you deserve. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, you could be seated, thanks. Let me check, check, all right, we're good. Um, Well, welcome back, Uh, excited to be here and to continue on this series that uh, we've been on. But before I actually go into the series, I have to give a shout out to someone who I consider in a lot of ways my ghostwriter, my lovely wife. Uh, Yes, she, um, before I ever come before you and just share what it is that, you know, God has put on my heart, she is giving me feedback and thoughts and insights. Um, And, you know, they say that behind Every good man is a good woman, but I actually don't agree with that. I think that it's, in my case, is a better woman. And um, so, honey, where are you at? We came separately, so I don't even know where you are right now. It's, there you go, in the back. It's her birthday tomorrow. So, uh, I just wanted to say happy birthday, and uh, I love you. And you also are very fine. Eyebrows always on fleek, and uh, that's my baby. So, okay, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. That's all. Um, so we're continuing on in this series called God of Freedom, uh, and um, American Slavery in the Church. And one question that um, one could reasonably ask. Like, why are we doing this series, right? You know, like we see the image, the chains and all that, like, okay, that was in our past. And we are compelled in realizing that we have to dig deeper into the full implications of the gospel, into areas that uh, are not normally uh, on an every given Sunday really communicated. Um, What are the gospel implications in the fractured, broken world in which we live. You know, you cannot turn on the television, yay, even a football game, and not hear the cries of justice, the cries of, of, of a sense of something being wrong in this world. And many people, many people have just assumed and written off that the church doesn't have anything of significance to say about it. But many others are still wondering, well, what, what, what would be the prophetic voice? Even many of us in the fellowship. And so we wanna just take time to establish this and to fill this thing out. 
Um, so several of us uh, went down to uh, Philly, uh, my hometown, Friday and Saturday to be part of the Thriving Conference. If you were there, make some noise, my Thriving Conference people. Yeah, yeah, hashtag woke church was the, um, was the concept and the theme. And really what this was, it was such a blast of encouragement uh, to us because we got to hear from communicators, we got to hear from thought leaders, people who you know, are just like, like Dr. Carl Ellis and Soong Chara and Dr. Eric Mason and um, you know, Karen Ellis and so many others who are just doing groundbreaking, thought-provoking work on this topic. And we definitely encourage you guys to check it out. You could even just, you know, at some point, not during the message, look at that hashtag and just see some of the uh, discussion around that. But ultimately, the question that we keep going back to and that the culture is asking is, is Christianity the problem or the solution to the issues of injustice that are around us? And so as we continue on in this series, uh, today we're actually looking at the issue of the Jubilee. And the Jubilee is God's response to injustice. Now, what is the Jubilee? Well, stay with me for a while. We have to go and look at, notice that it says God's response to injustice. And see, there is a a prerequisite for God, for something to respond to something, something had to happen first. And so here are the three points that we're gonna explore and look at today. The first is the problem is worse than we think. God's solution is better than we realize. And our calling is higher than we can imagine. So first, the problem is worse than we think. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, You know, there's a common theme that has found its way all the way from the Enlightenment era when people decided to come across and to develop meaning and purpose and identity of the universe outside of a theological framework. That's what the Enlightenment Project was about. And ever since that point, we've looked for uh, a theistic or atheistic or outside of God ways to explain everything from the nature of humanity to the nature of creation. And so one of the pernicious ideas that have come from this is this idea of that people are basically innately good. And somehow, despite all the evidence to the contrary, this idea that really the problem isn't humanity, the, really, the problem aren't people, the problem is something else, um, continues to persist. This morning I was reading an article that um, really kind of explored this idea to me in some interesting ways on a lot of fronts. Um, there's an article about this couple, Joshua Boyle and Caitlin Coleman, who were just yesterday uh, rescued from being in Afghanistan, they were captured and held hostage there for five years. Now, some were asked, well, how did they get in Afghanistan? He's from Canada, she's from Pennsylvania. What would happen that would have them be in Afghanistan in the first place, in the midst of war? Well, they were ones that were fond of traveling and going around the world and, um, and were kind of in the uh, Central Asia area and decided to kind of 
you know, just meandered their way into Afghanistan. Now, she was seven months pregnant at the time. Um, at the time, you know, and so very, very with child at that point. And this is what her mom said yesterday um, in terms of why they would go uh, in the article. It says, as odd as it may seem to us that they were there, they truly believe with all their heart that if they treated people properly, they would be treated properly. And as we can read that and go, okay, all right, so would you just kind of think that that policy works across the board? You kind of go, well, nah, that, you know, that, that's a bit naive of a perspective to have about, you know, humanity, right? That, but yet this is the idea that most have. And I'm not just picking on that area of the world, um, you know, that uh, Pakistan actually, you know, went out and, and, and rescued them and it was a great, you know, and I'm so happy that they're back home, but that was five years of trauma. The, uh, they killed her um, unborn child. Um, they had three children while they were there. I mean, the, the damage in terms of their family will go on for a long time. And so this idea that somehow, well, it's not individuals, right? People will say it's, it's society, to which I kind of scratch my head and go, what, you mean the society that's made up of people? We go back to this issue of innately good. And, but there are others who will go, well, you know, they look at that situation and that problem and all the issues and unrest in the Middle East, and they go, you know, they are the problem. Or, you know, those of us who have been oppressed on this side of, you know, the hemisphere might look at them as the problem. Who are them? Well, you can fill in the blank with whoever them comes to mind. We all have a they. And what this side of the uh, argument of humanity says, not that they're innately good, it's that me and we, whoever we are, are good, but they aren't. And so the problem becomes external to anything outside of myself, right? It's the system, it's the structures, it's the man. They the problem. And what we find is that this is also an insufficient position to take. Because look at what the scriptures say is the problem. Now we look, we remember Genesis chapter one, God creates man and woman and says, it is very good. They are in my image. This is very good. He's excited. Go be fruitful, multiply. Chapter three, they, they fall, they rebel against God. And after that sin enters into the world in chapter four, we see the first murder. Look at what happened, by chapter six, this is what it says. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Wow, what a contrast. I mean, just three chapters earlier, it was very good. And now, in this theologically very complex concept, he's saying, not only am I sorry, I regret it, but it grieves my heart. It grieves my heart when I see the violence, when I see the pain, when I see the betrayal, when I see the destruction that are at their hands. It grieves my heart. Pretending that humanity is basically good isn't woke. 
Now, there's this concept that we know of. Some call it total depravity. Some call it, but there's this idea that is written throughout Scripture that we see that every area of our nature has been corrupted. Now, that doesn't say that there's nothing good in us, that there aren't aspects and glimpses of common grace that we can just see and express and, and enjoy and, and, and participate in, regardless of you know, where we are, but it does say that we have a depth and a level of corruption that is undervalued and underestimated. And this has consequences. But, we, but the, the, the solution isn't just to pretend and act like, well, I'll just go to wherever and just be treated fairly and nicely and perfectly because I just do that to other people. Because the, the, the problem is deeper than that. But on the other side, pretending that they are the problem isn't woke either. Whoever the they is to you, whoever the structure, the man, the system is to you, like pretending that the problem only exists outside of ourselves is insufficient as well. And we'll see is also historically not accurate. Now, again, the scripture gives us a great picture of what this is all about. When God in, in Exodus chapter three, so Genesis comes you know, along, he chooses Abraham, his people uh, you know, go and, and, and they're developed and, and you, know, you have 12 tribes and, and then from there, Joseph gets sold into slavery, he's in Egypt and, um, and then he prospers in Egypt. And then in Exodus, by this point, a Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph or his people and got concerned about their population growth. And so as a result of that population growth, he decides to oppress them. And in Exodus chapter three, it says, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Look at what happens and what God is setting up his activity and his engagement and his involvement because he says that he has surely seen the oppression of his people. He's heard their cries and he sees what's been happening to them and he identifies with this sense of sorrow and says, now therefore Moses, I'm choosing you to do something about it. We're gonna get that back to that part later on, but the key aspect here is to look and see that God's response to human suffering is activity and to be involved. But here's the thing, because just like us, Israel also had a, a them, they are the problem scenario. Right? They came out of slavery and, and, and now they're in this situation where, okay, now we're the, we're the people on top. We have our own nation. And if you fast forward, basically the two bookends of the entire book of, of the Old Testament um, and all the books therein is about the issue of God taking them out of a place and, and bringing them into a promised land. And then they get so corrupt themselves that he has to then send them out of the promised land into captivity. And look at why Jeremiah explains why this happened. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you. He's being sarcastic now. Since you're not gonna do freedom like I told you to, like you're not gonna do justice like I told you to, oh, you wanna be free. You wanna be free, look what he says. <laughs> to the sword, to pestilence and the famine. And I will deliver you, same word that he used, out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage, to trouble now 
among all the kingdoms of the earth. You can't represent my name in defamement because what's happening now is people are looking at the oppression that you're doing to each other and then they got like, that's like, that's my name on it. And he's like, yo, y'all not putting no respect on my name right now. And I can't have that. I can't have that, so you gotta go. So what we see is that there's this issue both of spiritual and physical bondage and both individual and cultural collective responsibility. And we have to be able to proclaim a message that speaks to both. Not either or, not one or the other, but both and. The Bible's perspective on human brokenness is both more radical and more more accurate than liberal or conservative ideologies. Because you see, some of these ideologies like conservatism will say, well, you know, we can't trust big government. That's the problem. Well, except for when we're bailing out trillion dollar bank situations and paying, giving subsidies to people who are changing the face of neighborhoods through a thing called gentrification. But when it comes to people that actually need help, you know, no, no, we, we, don't, we don't do in the bailout thing because big government is the problem. But then on the liberal side, they'll say, oh, you know what? It's, it actually, that's the solution because see, we need government to fix it so that because people on their individual interests won't do what's right for the collective. And so again, all of these ideas exist outside of a biblical framework. And if you, the reality is the Bible is not conservative or liberal in this sense. It's truth. It's not beholden to any camp. Now, this is also essential for us to understand the depth of sin to realize why even in the midst, because look at this, even in the midst of God directly, dramatically revealing himself to the people of Israel, 10 plagues, Red Sea splits, and, and, and even the, the miracle, not just of them being delivered, but then the people of Egypt give them gold and, and, and silver and jewelry on the way out because they're so afraid of this God. And so they leave out with reparations. See, because you don't just enslave somebody for 400 years, a group of people, and then just say, all right, you know, you're, you're, you're free now. You're welcome. After we built an entire empire off your backs. Oh, that's another sermon. Okay, never mind. So, but this helps us understand that even if those people who got all of that direct revelation, fire, smoke, if they could get to a place where they themselves would be rebelling against a holy guy, then what would be true of his church that would come later? And this is exactly what we find with the American church early on in its role in slavery. Uh, George Whitfield, who is considered to my many to be one of the first evangelical preachers that went around proclaiming the gospel fervently, uh, is somebody that's held up as a milestone and, um, and actually in the 1700s, early 1740, he actually went to Georgia and started to see the oppression of enslaved Africans around him and had something to say to slave owners. Look at what he says. He's, he says, your dogs are caressed and fondled at your tables, but your slaves who are frequently styled dogs or beasts have not an equal privilege. They are scarce permitted to pick up the crumbs which fall from their master's table. 
So he's, he's criticizing these people and saying, look at the way you're treating other people. This ain't right. And in fact, he would later go on to have a plan to uh, create schools to educate uh, slaves. He, he, um, he also creates a, an orphanage. But there becomes a problem with his plan. You see, the, he didn't have the funds to actually continue to build the or- orphanage. And at that point in time, one of the best ways to make money was tobacco growth. And he turns over and is like, wow, if I want to do this thing and I want to have this orphanage, and if I want to grow tobacco, I need, I'm going to need some help that I don't have to pay for. And so the same guy, nine years later, says, had Negroes, slave, had Negroes been allowed, I should have had a sufficiency to support a great many orphans without expending above half the sum that had been laid out. Now he's complain, complaining of the fact that because at this point slavery wasn't legal in Georgia, that this is why his ministry of having an orphanage wasn't able to get off the ground and begins to actually campaign for slavery in Georgia. And that's how it happens. That's how corruption happens. When the things that we want to see happen and the influence that we want to have, we can't have, and so we decide to make moves on our own, even at others' expense. This is uh, what Pastor Thibidi Anyabuele said about this. He says, white evangelicalism would be complicit in the neglect, abuse, and destruction of the black body while claiming to care about the black soul. And see, this is important for us as a historical context to realize how this divorce and this separation happens where somehow we can talk about we need to pray, 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 and, 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 and hopefully see people come to Jesus and yet have nothing to say and be completely silent when there are bodies being slain on the ground all around us. How does that happen? It happens based on a theology and a, that is built and influenced and infused with a certain racism called white supremacy that then now justifies me being completely absent and silent on the things that affect your whole condition and just instead of some ethereal, spiritual kind of religion. Now, part of the problem though is even as we look at this and kind of dissect this a little bit, this idea that somehow this was just a church problem. Because as I mentioned earlier, the Enlightenment had already moved in this direction. And one of the interesting things, if you notice, David Hume, who was an atheist and a naturalist, this is what he had to say about race. He said, I am apt to suspect that Negroes, and in general, all other species of men, to be naturally inferior to whites, There never was any civilized nation of any other complexion than white, nor even an individual eminent in action or speculation. This is David Hume, who is still considered today a great sociologist, great thinker, great philosopher. So this project of supremacy, this idea, how do you get to a place where you can enslave a whole group of people, call them not even fully human, and still think that you're doing the right thing. Well, the problem is worse than we think. That's why. Because we underestimate God's goodness and overestimate human goodness, we blame God for human sin. Because see, this is what happens, right? So then we turn around and because it's like, well, the problem ain't us, it's that book that they keep talking about. That's who the problem is. 
No, the problem is even when God reveals himself to us, we're so broken, we'll take that distorted and then use it to oppress people. And that is the historical record. And that is what we have to realize. Now, subdominant groups, those who experience this level of oppression, there's a unique insight and perspective that we can have to that issue because we know that there's inconsistency brewing. We see it. And so this, this idea of focusing on individual stuff and not looking at the collective and not looking at corporate or cultural issues, it, it never really makes sense fully because you realize, well, wait a minute, well, what does God have to say about all of this? Well, let me ask you personally, how do you see human brokenness in your community? Let me zoom in a little bit more. How do you see human brokenness in your life? Because the point that I'm making is that we all jacked up. Not just them, not just her. We all jacked up. We're all broken and that that manifests itself in some way. Well, that's the problem. It's worse than we think. Praise God, his solution is better than we realize. This is the good news, y'all. Look at the rest of the passage that it says in Exodus chapter three, he says, okay, so I have surely seen the oppression of my people, we read this earlier, who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster, for I know their sorrows. Look, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt, of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land. He says, as a result of me seeing this sense of oppression is a result of me seeing what's going on among humanity. I am going to get involved and I'm going to restore what has been broken. And I'm going to do that in my own self. And we see this in particular with the aspect of uh, the Jubilee. Now look at this now, it's so, uh, this is mind blowing. So Psalm 85, 14, it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. What God is saying here is I am so identified with righteousness and justice that it is actually foundational to understanding who I am. You can't even know who I am if you don't have a concept of justice and righteousness, but it actually gets better. Because when you look at these two terms, righteousness and justice, well, what do they mean and what's their significance? Well, here, <laughs> the reality is that that word righteousness could be, uh, it's, it's from the Hebrew word tzedek, T-S-E-D-E-Q, and justice from mishpat, two Hebrew words. And here's the fascinating thing. When I discovered this, it just rocked my whole world in theology, is that justiceness, justice and righteousness and tzedek are interchangeably. In other words, whenever you see righteousness in the Old Testament in your word, talking about the character of God, and then you see it somewhere else where it's talking about his justice, it's the same word. Depending on the context, the uh, translator may emphasize his character from a holiness perspective or from a expression of that holiness as it relates to the outworking of people. Okay, I'm, I'm not following me. All right, let me try it again. So in other words, God's righteousness and God's justice is him being the same thing. So if you wanna be, talk about being righteous in the Hebrew mind when talking about God, then you can't talk about him being righteous, holy, set apart, distinct, morally good and perfect without him talking about being just. Yeah. 
It's the same concept. And mishpat is this other component where it has to actually deal with restorative justice. What it's saying is, so, so Sedek is emphasizing the way that we rightly treat other people, and that's righteous. Treating someone else fairly, us you know, living in a society in which justice is done. But then because in the Hebrew mind, we already know that there's brokenness, Mishpat is emphasizing the fact that this is restoring, I am proactively going to fix what I know y'all gonna break. It's like when you're a parent and it's like, okay, I know that if I'm gonna give you that toy, it got about six months, because that thing gonna get busted. And so God actually puts in place a system to fix what he know we gonna break. And it's called Jubilee. And it is an amazing it, it, uh, foundational perspective when you look at God's word and what his character is and his attitude toward justice. It is found in Leviticus chapter 25. Yeah, we get to go into Leviticus today, y'all. So, and look at what it says. It says, Leviticus 25, 10, it says, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear God, for I am the Lord your God. So what he's saying is, okay, the 50th year, you go, okay, wow, that sounds kind of random. Why 50? Well, we got to rewind back to Genesis. Seven days he created the world. Six days he created the world. On the seventh day, he did what? He rested. That rest was called the Sabbath. Now, what he's saying, so that's seven days. Now, they also had a rule that at the end of seven years, you also had a, it was like a, a, a mega Sabbath where the land had to lay fallow for a whole year. So they could not plant. They could not work the land. They could not work their, it was a year off for the land of rest. Now, that's like, that's seven years. So then seven times, what's seven times seven? 49. So 49 would come and that seventh Sabbath would be the Sabbath of Sabbaths. And then on the 50th year, the year after that Sabbath, it's the Jubilee. So it's all connected to the fact that this is saying God is speaking to this issue of rest. And look at what he's saying. It's actually not just about a day off as much as we love the weekend. That it's about this idea that I know that left to your own devices, you will overwork your employees and never give them a day off. Amen, somebody who got a boss. <laughs> I know that left to your own devices, you will never let the land rest. You will always overwork it and exploit it. And so I got to tell you what to do. And left to your own devices, even when this injustice flows and, and tr trickles in, you will not restore that. So I'm going to tell you that anybody who went under hard times and had to, you know, put themselves in, in bondage and debt to you, they get to go free and that debt is wiped out because I'm going to restore what's broken. I gotta keep moving. Um, so look at what happens, right? And it says, and if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee, and then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and, and they shall return to his own family. You see what he's doing there? He said, this is not just about taking a day off or a year off. What I am doing is that when someone becomes poor and sells himself to you, so you need to understand when you read in the Old Testament in the economy of Israel, they're talking about slavery. It's dealing with somebody who they got two choices because some happened and the bank account didn't come through right, the, the, the crops didn't raise, and they got two choices. Either I put myself in someone else's debt as their servant or I starve to death. 
Now that might seem, oh, that's strange and an interesting historical fact. Let me ask you something. If your debtors, right, everybody that you owe money right now said pay up, how many of us in here would have the ability to pay them? Yeah, Fannie Mae would be up in here like, yo, I got some land for you to work over there. You know what I mean? Uh, it, we just wouldn't have it. And so that's the reality that God is dealing with. But he's saying, look, there's going to be a holy reset button on this whole thing so that even if you fall into these conditions, it will not be forever. There's a way out. Jubilee reveals and models for us social justice and the concern that we have for the poor, the concern that we have for the marginalized, and the realization that society is broken, and so we have to preemptively, proactively take the initiative to fix what is already going to be broken down and weary because of our own sense of sinfulness. And God has predicted and projected that. But here's the thing. Even that was just a snapshot of the things to come. Because you see in Luke chapter 4, 18 uh, 18 and 19, we talked about this a little bit last week. Jesus, when he first starts his ministry, opens up the scroll, going to the book of Isaiah, says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, look, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at, help me out now, liberty, oh, that was weak, to set at liberty, those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's kind of an interesting phrase that you just kind of throw away, keep it moving until you realize that it's not a throwaway phrase. When he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he's talking about the Jubilee. And what happens is he says, so this is a prophecy that's saying one day you will set this all right because you know what? The reality is there's historically no evidence or proof that Israel actually applied this rule of jubilee that God had told them to do. We have no evidence that they actually did it. We actually have evidence to the contrary that they never did. Well, they never did until one time. In the book of Luke, after Jesus reads this scroll, he, everybody looks at him as he goes to sit down and he says, today this saying has been fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus is saying is I am the Jubilee. My presence, and look at what he does. What, do, do, do the poor get good news sent to them? Do the blind receive sight? Do those who are broken get whole? Do, do people who are marginalized, like women in that society, do they experience dignity and, and when they interact with Jesus? Does he break down strongholds? He does all of that in himself, and then he says, I am the one who's gonna give you rest in me. And this is the full instance of the gospel. Well, how is God's solution speak or speaking to the personal and social injustices you see? Well, I know it speaks both to the private and the public, to the individual and the corporate, to the tangible and the spiritual. He is getting there in every nook and cranny with this aspect of Jubilee. So that's his solution and it's better than we can imagine. But lastly, our calling is higher than we can imagine our calling. Now, the other time we talked about side A and side B and we talked about cassettes, right? And there are some of y'all that, you know, may not even realize that the cassette itself was a later creation to something that came before the cassette called an album. Yeah. 
this was an actually black record that people would actually put on a uh, record player, put a little needle on, and music would come and spin. And it had a side A, and you flipped it over, and there was a side B side to it. And that was where that initially comes in. And so in the gospel, and you know, uh, Dr. Carl Ellis, I, I give him credit for this very helpful way for us to wrap our heads around what, what's missing and why we've seen such this uh, disconnect between justice and God. He talks about side A is what we should know about God. So this has to do with personal conduct, right? This is devotions and, and Bible study. This is fasting and, and sexual purity or prayer corporately. These are the things that you know, are typically considered and thought about when we talk about being you know, in church or being a Christian. But much as there's two sides to a record, there's also another component to this thing of faith. And that is side B, which is now how should we obey God? And this is where it gets into this issue of the Jubilee, where he's speaking not only to individuals, but to systems, to structures. He's speaking to equality. He's talking about restitution. This is why if you look in Zacchaeus, in the incident when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, a tax collector, and, and Zacchaeus comes to faith when Jesus comes to his house, and he says and he announces to everybody, if I've defrauded anyone and stolen from you, I'll give it back four times over. He isn't just being very generous. That was the law. He's saying, wow, the practical application for me actually living this thing out of embracing the kingdom of God is fixing stuff that's broken, that I broke. That, that little widow over there that got nobody that can advocate for her, that I took her money and exploited her, I gotta pay for that. And so this aspect, both individually and corporately, as it relates, again, to big people groups, and we see that throughout. Uh, I mean, I wish we had time to look at the sojourner and the immigrant and the foreigner and how God is very deliberate about by wanting to care for the people that come into their midst who are not the people of Israel. And how different that is from the way that we talk about it right now in our public discourse, as if it's like a problem. But here's the beauty. Because even though you have side A and you have side B, that's not the full manifestation of God's truth and how we bring this together. But the reality is what he wants us to do is work this thing out with some turntables, right? So, so, so this is how you apply God's word to life, right? Because see, what happened with hip hop and how it got started was folks didn't have enough money to have instruments and the school system was broken down. So, so but the, the music was still there. So it was like they started taking records and they put one record on one end, they put one other record on the other end, and then they would go back and forth and use the mixture, mixer in the middle to create something completely new. And what God is wanting to do in us is the same thing. Cause you know, I remember there's sometimes when the remix is better than the original. Now, this was a long time ago, so I don't know, expect any of y'all to notice, but there was this song called Flavor In Your Ear, probably one of the best remixes of all time. Sometimes I forget that the one with Biggie and LL was not the original, that that's the remix. <laughs> but Craig Mack on his own couldn't hold all that weight, but then he did the remix and the remix got better. And Craig Mack after that was like gone because there was no more remixes for him. <laughs> but then you look at, you know, Super Freak, the Can't Touch This. People don't even realize that there was a song that MC Hammer was sampling on. But here's the thing. When you get the two turntables together and you have that mix of godly wisdom, you are able to understand who God is and his truth. 
and listen to that and then go look at your situation of structural inequality and injustice and listen to that and then go back and forth and mix that thing together to create a remix that pictures what God's intention and his vision is for society. So you just gotta, you know, mix that thing and create something new. Now, one of the best DJs that we've seen do this of all time came from Dorchester, Maryland. Now, her name was Araminta Minty Ross. Oh, y'all know about DJ Minty? All right, let me, let me break it down for you. She was born into slavery around 1820. We don't know exactly when because they didn't really keep good records of slaves. They didn't see them as valuable enough as humans to do that. But uh, she was illiterate because they wouldn't allow slaves to teach because they were afraid if they got a hold of that book that something dangerous might happen, the Bible. And so as a result of that, um, she was still taught though, her mom would tell her stories about the Bible. And she began to just come, you know, like enamored with this and, trust, and come to believe and trust in this God who her mom told her about. And in the midst of that, she became known for being a prayer warrior. She would just pray all the time, pray for deliverance, pray for her people. Interesting enough, her mom, one time when the slave master came to, uh, they sold off her son and he came with his business partner to sell and they came to the door and she's like, you ain't coming in here to get my son. You will have to kill all of us in here before I let you do that. <laughs> he actually turned away and was like, yeah, I can't sell this child to you. And so Mincy saw this growing up she would later actually escape slavery herself, but then go back to get her family. And then when people saw how adept she was at going back to get people, she started to go back more to get more people. And before you knew it, there were hundreds of people that were in connection with her and a, a, co a collective and a network of Christians that some angry slave owner one day called an underground railroad as a result of them, she was able to free all of these people and never lost a passenger. Now, y'all might know her by a different name, right? Because when she got free, she changed her name. You know, she couldn't hang on to that government and still move around, so she changed it to Harriet, right? But look at what Harriet Tubman says. God's time is always near. He set the North Star in the heavens. He gave me the strength in my limbs. He meant that I should be free. And even though she couldn't read, she understood more theology than my man George Whitfield and any of these other cats had because she understood that the year of Jubilee had already come and that this idea that God's freedom and deliverance was for her right now. And so she took that to heart personally. And you know what? Look at that. They called her Moses. I wonder where they that, got that idea from because she was reminiscent of those who would be delivered, who would deliver others. She would later on uh, give her estate to the AME Zion Church because they were known as a freedom church. They would end up building an orphanage as a result of that. And this, and why do I bring that up? Because she passed the baton. It didn't end with her. It kept going and it kept going. And this is why Pastor Thabiti says, we need a body and soul religion and we're going to have to be the ones who develop it. We have to be the ones, we can't look to somebody outside of our community to figure out how to remix this thing, to figure out how do we fix what is broken. We are the ones, and this is why we were so excited and encouraged when we went to this conference, is because we see we are not alone in this endeavor. We are not alone in this pursuit, but we are the ones that God has called. Now here's the piece. We need to remix side A and side B to produce Jubilee among us. Now, some of you might go, well, how do I do that? 
And see, the, the cool thing is it's right there in the passage. If you go to Isaiah 61 again, and you see when he says, I come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he then begins to start talking about how God does some remixing. He says, I'm gonna take beauty uh, and for ashes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take what was broken, and then I'm gonna take those and comfort them. And see, we know what that looks like because many of our lives have been remixed. I've seen it in and around me. He took a guy who was a wild cue and a bouncer in college and he and made him a pastor here at Bridge Church. I saw that change transformation take place. Yeah, yeah. He took someone like myself who was self-righteous, who thought he knew everything, who, and then he just and he made me broken and realized I didn't have all the answers and I needed him and not myself. He took some of you who were known as something completely different, remixed you, and now the remix is so good, people don't even remember what the original looked like. That's what God does. He's a master at the remix. And so now he comes into us and he says, look, I want you to remix your neighborhood, your community, your society. I want you to go in and tell somebody who's in prison that, look, this is not the end of the story, that God has a dope producer, the Holy Spirit of God, who will come into your life, remix that thing, and then put it out and it'll be on display for the world to see. That's what he's about, the remix. And that's what he entrusts us to be about. Who wants to be remixed? Who wants to experience what it looks like to be rooted in the truth of who God says we are, combined with what it means to ethically live out the implications of that truth? Now, in the midst of that, there's also, again, because it's not just out there, it's inside of us. And the reality is when we experience that brokenness and baggage, there's sometimes also a sense of bitterness that emerges. And part of what Jesus makes very clear is that if we hold on to that sense of bitterness and unforgiveness ourselves, then we are still in bondage. So I'm gonna challenge you with who do you need to forgive and set free? Who do you need to forgive and let go of things that they may have done and who is God calling you to proclaim deliverance to? Now, when I say proclaim, <laughs> last piece and I'm, I'm, I'm really done. I don't mean just use words. Because you see, in the Greek, the word proclaim means karyos. And the karyos was both the message that someone had to say, but it was also the messenger. Why is that significant? Because what God is saying here when he's saying proclaim jubilee, He's not just saying, go and talk about it, but walk it out. Jubilee was a known, it was, actually comes from the Hebrew jubal, which meant a, a ram's horn. It would, it would be announced that Jubilee was coming because they would blow the ram's horn. People would hear the sound and they would hear the celebration and they would see the declaration and they would see people actually let chains fall and let them go. That's what it means to proclaim liberty. That's what it means to proclaim Jubilee. May we all be ones that proclaim him, not just in our words, but in our actions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Jubilee. We thank you for the fact that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. For the fact that you both care about the body and the soul and you challenge us to do the same. 
Help us to live out lives of jubilee. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.